I invite you to uh, take your Bibles with me this morning. We are going to start at the very beginning in a few moments here, Genesis chapter 1. So, nice, easy place to find it. Ushers are coming through. They have some uh, notes, if you would uh, like. Uh, they have a lot of information. Some of you may be looking going, how in the world is he going to cover that in that amount of time? Uh, I don't know. We'll see what we get through. And uh, thankfully, I have morning and evening. So I have, if we, if we don't get through everything, we'll, we'll cover it a little bit uh, some more tonight. Um, that song was really, really good for me because there's been a couple things happening in my life uh, in the last week or so that I look and I'm like, okay, God, where, what are you doing to me? Why is this happening? And, and are you like me where you, you do things and you like to blame God for it? But sometimes you wonder, okay, is this God taking me through a trial? What's going on? About a week and a half ago, I, uh, I was doing some exercise. It wasn't running, surprisingly. And I was doing something else. And uh, I uh, tore my calf muscle. And uh, it, it hurt. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But uh, I, I thought it was main, mainly a muscle cramp. And uh, I was, uh, so on the following Wednesday, I was down going up the stairs in the back here. And I was like doing calf raises to try and stretch out my, stretch out my calf muscle. And uh, while I was doing that, all of a sudden, my, my calf just popped. And, uh, and it hurt a lot. And I was like, okay. And, and of course, all the, all the moms down in TNT were looking at me and saying, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, all of a sudden, I felt like I had to say yes, dear, to like five people rather than just one. But uh, so, so I did go to the doctor. The doctor said, yes, you have a, you have a torn calf. It's not too bad. Be, be, kind, be, be kind to it. Take your time relax with it. And, and honestly, over the last week and a half, it's been rehabbing nicely, feeling really good. And, uh, so much so that I, I really went out of sight, out of mind, wasn't even worried about it. Wasn't thinking much about it. Friday, Sharon and I were down in Williamsburg for a, uh, for a wedding and we were staying with some friends of ours and we were getting ready to leave for the wedding and they had already left. And we went to, to go out the door and the door only had a deadbolt lock. It didn't have a, another lock at the knob. And I was like, how we, we can't leave their house unlocked. What are we going to do? And then I had this bright idea. Hey, let's go out the, let's go out the garage door. We can go out the garage door and, and we can make it out there. No problem. So, so we went out the garage door and, and I looked at the garage door. I'm like, okay, it's about 20 feet from here to the, the door. I should be able to make it out. No problem. And, uh, and I decided to do a little Indiana Jones thing, you know, where you got to run and, and get through. I wasn't even thinking about, about my leg because it didn't hurt. It was out of sight, out of mind. And, uh, I went for it the first time, and I, and when it was going through, I'm like, all right, made it, no problem. And the door went up, and I'm like, oh, they got one of those little sensors there. All right, I got to jump the sensor while I'm running. No problem. I go, I run, I jump, I get through it. I'm like, yeah, okay, that did not feel good. I was in sheer pain. It, it popped even far worse. I'll go to the doctor tomorrow. We'll see what happens. So if I'm, if I'm hobbling around and I do one of those, don't worry. It's all good. It's, it's just the way it is. But I started thinking about it, and I, said, I was thinking to myself, you know, that's a lot like America has been over the last few years in regard to this topic of LGBT. Now, we're going to talk about it this morning, the, the idea of homosexuality. What does the Bible say? We've known as Christians that it's an ache in our society. It's been there, but we don't talk about it. Or if we do, we do it in, in passing comments, or we, we make snide remarks, or we just say, hey, you know what, that's it, that settles it, we're done. And we don't, we don't really talk about it a whole lot until the moral muscle of America gets torn. 
And now it's like, wow, there has been some radical change that has happened in our society over the last couple months. And, and, and we need to address it. We need to talk about this. This is, this is a big deal now because of the things that have been happening in the moral fiber of our country. And so, so we look at it and we say, okay, what, what has happened? And, and really the silence on this issue during this election cycle to me has been a little disappointing. It's, it's not being talked about much. It's other, other issues are being talked about. And we look at it in, in relationship to the election. And, and even in the last four years, there has been amazing change in four years. When you look at back to 2012, when the, when the issues of uh, California Proposition 8, their ban on same-sex marriage, that was, that was there. And the court it, struck it down. And it was going to be moving toward the Supreme Court. There, Washington and Maryland were only the seventh and eighth states at this time to, to legalize gay marriage. And uh, then even at that time during the, the elections, we remember President Obama came out, said, I'm going to endorse the idea of gay marriage uh, that is happening. Within, within a year, we have the Defense of Marriage Act that is going to be struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States. We have California, again, beginning their gay marriage uh, policies in the, in the country. And several states begin this process of, of gay marriage and beginning to, to recognize some of, these, some of these processes. By 2014, just a few years later, gay marriage bans are being struck down across the United States. There was a, a minor victory in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals where a few, a few states such as Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, right in that area, they, they actually, their, their bans were upheld. But we know that only, only within a year, when we, we look back to, to Jan, June 26th, when in 2015, when uh, the, the Supreme Court case over v. Hodge legalized gay marriage in the United States. And now even in 2016, we remember just back earlier this year, when uh, North Carolina, the, the governor there, uh, Pat, Pat McCrory, was that, was that? Yeah, Pat McCrory signed, signed into legislation that we would not allow transgender bathroom use. And we remember even this past spring how that has escalated in the controversy and the comments and the, the, the conversations that have been, been going through America. And, and we look at all these things that are happening in our country, and there has been a, an amazing change that has happened over, the, over four years. Now, tonight we'll talk about that it just didn't start with gay marriage. This has been happening in our country for, for a while. We'll, we'll look back to, to some of the, the history and how it's impacting us as, as believers. But I want to say this. The fight for LGBT, LGBT equality, it's not over. I'm fearful that so many believers and, and Christians and even, even in the electorate just look and go, this isn't an issue anymore. It is an issue. There are a number of things that are coming out. In fact, I won't tell you which candidate, but they wear pantsuits very often. Um, they... Uh, they say gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights. In fact, they, they put out an ad uh, just in December uh, 2015 saying the fight for LGBT, LGBT. Sharon told me if I don't slow down, I'm going to say that every different way possible. But uh, LGBT quality is, equality is not over. And we look and we say there's a, there's a lot going on. Religious freedoms are and will be brought before the Supreme Courts. That's, that's coming up here. That's, that's, to me, one of the reasons that the Supreme Court nominations in this election cycle are so important. Will we have the right to stand up here and make the declaration that I'm going to make today? Or will it be nope? Will we be hauled away to jail? Will we be willing to do that? This is a big issue. And it's already happening in some of the countries or in some of the states where these, are, where these are happening. 
So where do, where do they stand? I'm not going to take time to go through everything on this. But let me, let me read a couple, a, couple, a couple quotes here um, and just give you some synopsis of, of where some of the candidates at. Jill Stein, she's been considered a longtime advocate for marriage equality, and she's calling for greater protection against LGBT rights in the community. Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, she applauded Obama administ- Obama's, the Obama administration in directing of public schools for the transgender bathroom issue. She uh, said we need to promote and uh, press on uh, toward gay rights and towards transgender rights. Uh, in the Washington Post, May 13, 2016, uh, her spokesperson said, as President Hillary, we will fight to make sure all Americans can live their, free, uh, live their lives free from all discrimination. Gay rights and human rights are one and the same. I will disagree with that. Um, Trump, he, he's, he says, well, I just believe that states should decide. And he just keeps walking back. And, and there, was, there was a lot when the stuff came out in the, the spring. He made this statement, well, it's there, it's, so be it. Now let's walk it back. Well, the state should have the right. He's been, he's been on multiple different uh, facets of where he stands. There's, some have come out, the, the log cabin Republicans, which is the, uh, the section of the Republican Party that is, has a gay platform. They're, they're pro-gay. They are a number of uh, gay individuals who they look and say, Trump is our, our best candidate. You have to look at the entire quote there. It just doesn't say Trump is the best pro-gay candidate ever. The, the man who actually makes that statement actually steps it back a little bit. He's saying not that he's going to make anything better for us, but uh, they do endorse him. They say, they say that he's, he's good. But at the same time, Trump will say, uh, he said this in, uh, in an MSNBC interview. He said, I think I'm evolving. I think I'm a very, very, you can just see him very, I'm a very, I'm a very fair person. But I can't even do it. But anyway, uh, but I've been for traditional marriage. I am for traditional marriage. I am for a marriage between a man and a woman. He's been able to demonstrate that at least three times. So, um, but uh, anyway, I, 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 don't, I don't covet pastor because I, I said the other day, I said, how do you do this and not get so political? I, I don't... You want to make statements, but anyway, uh, Gary Johnson, he's, he's been very much in support of uh, same-sex marriage and has advocated, advocated hard for don't ask, don't tell. Now, I look at them, and, and honestly, I'm not happy 100% with any of them on any of these issues. And then I look even further, I say, well, what about, what about the VPs? Where, where do they stand on this? Tim Kaine said, we applaud and thank the Department of Education and Justice for sharing the goal and for their commitment to equality and work in support of the LGBT students, talking about the, the transgender bathroom issue. Uh, he said, we respectfully request that the departments complete the work by issuing clear and comprehensive guidance. He praised the Supreme Court for the same-sex marriage uh, dynamics, uh, the, the rulings. Uh, as governor, he, uh, he said, I signed into an executive order banning discrimination on the basis of all sexual orientation. Mike Pence, he writes in regard to the, the bathroom issue of transgenders, he wrote this. He said, the federal government has no right getting involved in, this, in issues of this nature. He later says that uh, he, he, voted, he voted for the Marriage Protection Amendment, which uh, proposed marriage in the United States shall consist only of the union of one man and one woman. He also in that said that U.S. Constitution or any other state constitution should be construed to require that marriage be confirmed, should not be conferred upon any other union. So he was very clear on where he stands on that. Um, He's probably out of all the candidates taken the most flack 
uh, for, for what he said. In fact, in, a, in an interview that he made back in 2006, uh, he, he quoted this individual, Petrim Sorokin. Uh, Sorokin was the founder of so- um, uh, sociology at, the Harvard, at Harvard University back in the 30s. He came over. He was a Russian sociologist. He fled, fled the country, and he made this statement. He said, societal collapse was always brought about following an advent, a rise of the deterioration of marriage and family. And he quoted that, and, and Pence went on further to say, being gay is a choice, and that preventing gay couples from marrying was not discrimination, but a means of enforcing God's idea. I'm like, can I vote for that guy? Um, but but I, I look and I say, okay, where, where are all these at? And I, and I like that idea that Pence said about God's idea. And in order for us to be informed, in order for us to be wise, and I, I believe relevant Christians in today's society, we must understand what is God's idea? What is God's idea in regard to homosexuality? It's not a popular topic. It's a topic that for some of you, you're going to be very uncomfortable the entire time I speak this morning. And while I'm speaking the entire time, I'll be uncomfortable about some things. But we have to look and say, this is the society we live in. This is the culture that is present. And we must be a light to this, to this world. And we must understand very clearly and biblically what the Bible says in regard to this topic. So, so what does God's word say in regard to LGBT issues? Now, you might say, well, I'm preaching to the choir. I remember last week, pastor said, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir on this idea of innocence. I don't know that I'm preaching to the choir this morning. Because in recent surveys, recent polls, 60%, 66% of Protestants are now in favor of lesbian gay weddings. 63% say there is no conflict with their religious beliefs in homosexuality. That's, that's staggering. 36%, let's narrow it down, not just Protestants, evangelicals, us. Evangelicals, 36% of evangelicals say that it should be accepted. I had the 24%. In 2007, the, the, one of the last polls that was done before this one in, in 2015 here, uh, it was at 24%. So it's risen uh, 12%. In fact, uh, baby boomers, a number here, baby boomers, they, 32%, now say that it is okay, should be accepted. And, and you look at that and you're like, wow. You know, because when I first looked at the 36 evangelicals, the, the one in the middle there, I was thinking, oh, well, you know, it's probably a lot of those who are younger, and, and I would expect that to, to be the case a little bit more because it's being inundated in our society. But that number surprised me. Those born in the 60s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, the baby boomers, saying that that's Okay. This one, this one breaks my heart. 51%. That's almost a quarter of our congregation, technically, say it's okay. That's not what God says. And we have to look and say, what does God say on this topic? So I don't think I'm preaching to the, the choir. In fact, I think it's, it, why did this happen? The awkward silence of some, shh, I don't want to talk about this. It's too, it's too awkward. I don't want to have to talk about homosexuality with my kids. It's just, it's awkward for me. It's, I don't want to talk. And the volatile ridiculousness of others has caused people to look and say, we need to, we need to just back away. We need to rethink our position in the, in the church. And we, we have to look and say, are, are we really going to just uh, 
simply rethink our position because there's a, there's a fringe group, a sect of, of believers that, that are radical about this? Are we going to look and just say, well, because people haven't talked about it, maybe, maybe they're just ashamed of it and it's wrong? No, we need to look and say, what, what does the Bible say about it? In Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to start. Genesis 1 and 2, I, I believe it's the right place to start. Because you have to know, if, if we're going to say something's wrong, you must know where, where it's deviated from. Where, where did the wrong, where, what's the contrary to the right? And in Genesis chapter 1, we, we're going to see, and I'm going to, and I'm going to trust on your biblical knowledge for the most part. I'm not going to spend time diving deep into a lot of these passages this morning. But we look and say, okay, what, what does the Bible say? We look down, uh, God is creating all things. In the beginning, God, he creates. He creates the world. He creates light. He creates days, sun, moon, stars. He creates all, all the things. And he gets down to verse 27, and it says, so God, in verse 26, he says, let's make man in our image after our likeness and, and let them have dominion over the seas and the fish and the air. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image and after his likeness. And he created him, male and female created he them. So man is uniquely created in God's image. So we see that God is the one who created man. He established genders that complement each other. God is the one who looked and said, I am creating. And what did he create? He created male and female. The, word, the words are very specific to the gender. God is the one who established gender. God is the one who said there is a male, there is a female. Both biologically, intuitively, he says, this is, this is who you are. And they uniquely complemented each other. In verse 27, it talks about male and female. He created them. Down in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it talks about that he is going to make, I will make a help meet. One that is suitable for him. One that uniquely complements it's not just they emotionally complement. The wording here and the idea is that they, they physically complement. The natural law is such that they, they uniquely, physically, biologically, they are uniquely complementing to each other. A male and a female, just like in all of nature, there is the aspect where they uniquely complement one another. In verse 23, it says, it says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. What is God establishing here? He's establishing the fact that in, in, through marriage and through the sexual union that occurs, it says very, very clearly, out of one flesh, God takes a rib out of Adam, out of Adam's flesh. He doesn't create Eve out of the dust of the ground. He created Adam out of the dust of the ground, but he is going to take out of one flesh, he's going to take Adam's rib, and he's going to create a second flesh. And through those two, uh, through those two and through sexual intimacy, the two are uniquely, spiritually, wonderfully given, brought back into one flesh. So, so the Bible establishes very clearly, God is the one who is establishing that sex is, is legitimate, sex is good, within, within the confines that he is going to establish. In, uh, in verse 24 and 25, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting to me in chapter, um, I, I think I have one there, but it should be chapter 2, sorry about that. Um, he says, and this shall be verse 23, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, uh, she shall be called woman, woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, straight out of, right out of the creation, man and woman created, he, Jesus, or, uh, the creator goes in, there sh- therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. He goes right into the covenant of marriage. Marriage is not a contract. 
It's not just this agreement. It is a covenant, a dedication between a husband and a wife, one man for one woman for all of this lifetime, established by God in these passages. And he looks, and and we have to say, we have to understand that when God said that it is good, he wasn't just talking about, hey, I made these trees, they look nice. Hey, I made these people, they look nice. Hey, I made these animals, they look good. Everything about everything that he created was good, And it was very good, verse 31. So he looks and he says, all of it, including the sexual union of husband and wife. Including the the family unit that was established in the Garden of Eden. And so we have to understand, and this is important to portray to our children, to be teaching. That God promotes sex, God permits it, and God blesses it within the covenant of marriage. He establishes it in the passage. He establishes that it is a very good thing and that we need to understand it's not something that is evil. It is not something that is wrong within the God-given parameters that he has established. Now, critics are going to argue this. They're going to say, hey, no, all they had, all they had was Adam and Eve. If, maybe, if, maybe if there was another man, Adam might have chosen another man. He, they weren't given the options. But I remind you back into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to quote from this passage. In fact, he's going to do it very, uh, very directly uh, in the passage. Um, down in verse number four through six, he's going to say, have you not read? That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. What there are, uh, what, wherefore they are no more two but one flesh. Wherefore what God has put together, let no man separate. Jesus Christ himself is going to uphold this concept of gender, that there is male and a female. Jesus Christ is going to affirm that the body, that the flesh he talks about, is the medium which allows the husband and the wife to experience a deep and physical spiritual union together. So he's upholding the concept of marriage, of, of heterosexual sex within marriage. I feel like I have to qualify all of that now. We're being forced to have to qualify every single thing that we talk about. But what is, God is not just Jesus. We can't say anymore. Jesus just can, uh, says that sex inside of marriage is good. Because now we must define, Jesus defines a heterosexual sex within a marriage, a biblical marriage, is good. And, but he does, he does affirm that. He upholds the permanency of this covenant. He says, what, what God has put together, let no man separate. There's a number of books that are talking about one of the reasons that we're seeing the, the sexual revolution, now the homosexual revolution that is occurring is because of our lack of commitment as a society to the covenant of marriage. And just the whimsical, laissez-faire attitude toward we can just divorce, we can just, if we don't like them, we can try out somebody new and, and go at it. And it's, it's leading toward this whole idea. But if you remember, in this passage, so, so we see that Jesus upholds this concept of intimacy, of marriage, of, of heterosexual uh, activity inside of marriage. But as we walk through Scripture, we know as soon as we get to Genesis chapter 3, the curse, the curse enters in. And just like, just like when God says all of this is good, we have to remember that when the curse impacts, the curse impacts everything. The curse did not just bring a little sin into the world. The curse impacts everything. In fact, the curse impacted sexuality. We have to understand the impact of sexuality. The holy and pure perspective that Adam and Eve had has now been exchanged 
for a perspective of shame and fear. Do you remember? In uh, Genesis 2, verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. But if you go down to chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, they heard the voice of God walking in the garden. This is after they've eaten the fruit. And the cool, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord God calls Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. There became this shame, this fear that happened, and even in regard to sexuality. So we have to understand that even the curse impacted sexuality. And as we see that begin to play out through the Bible, we see that in numbers of ways. We see instantly where all of a sudden, by the time you get to Genesis 6, the days of Noah, that there's, there's wickedness upon the face of the earth and there, there's sexuality that is, that is linked to that. You get to Abraham, and now Abraham and Sarah, and they're, they're going to go to Egypt, and he's going to allow his wife to maybe be with the king Pharaoh. He's okay with some of that. Even with the, the king of the Amalekites, the same type of thing happens where he's going to maybe let his wife be in an, an intimate relationship with the king just to save their own heads. You get the, the concept with Abraham and Hagar, because they don't, they're not going to have a son, and will, will that be okay? And not, not following after God's plan of one man, one woman for all, for all of eternity, for all of this lifetime. And, and we see that begin to play out. And as it continues to play out through the pages of Scripture, we come to a point in Genesis where we hit Genesis chapter 19. Let's go to Genesis 19. Because if we talk about as Christians, if we get to, if we get to a place and we're, we're dealing and trying to encourage people in this way, what does the Bible say? Genesis chapter 19 is one of those passages that instantly comes to mind, even if it's not one we can remember where it is. We just know, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We got to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah if we're going to talk about what does the Bible say in regard to homosexuality. And, and as, we, as we look there, remember, remember the story here that it's happening. God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, two angels, they come, they meet with Abraham. And as they're meeting with Abraham, they're talking with him. And Abraham is being told that you and Sarah will have a son. And, and that all transpires. And while they're leaving, God and Christ have a, have a conversation. And, and they're told, hey, we need to tell Abraham what's about to happen. And so Abraham is filled in on the fact that they are going to destroy, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. By this point in the story, Lot and Abraham have gone their separate ways. They've, 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 they've went different ways, and Lot is now living in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends two angels that's going to deal with the judgment that is upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So as they, as they, as they do that, they, they have this issue that's going to happen. You see, the, the men come into the city. And Lot looks at them and he bows down in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, it says, and he bowed himself and faced toward the ground. Lot was aware that these were messengers of God. He bows down to him and he says, you can't stay here. Verses 2 and 3, you, you, you can't be here. Why don't you just come in, come into my house. We'll give you some food and, and you need to get out of this area as soon as possible. And he's trying to push them out the door because he understands what's going to happen. Because down in verse number, verse number 4, it says, and, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, both young and old, all the people from every corner. And they called Lot and they said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out here that we may know them. Now, that word no, yada, it, it is the word that has the idea of sexual intimacy, of a sexual relationship. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the very first time it's mentioned that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's the same word that's being used. And from that knowing, she, she had a son named Cain. So it deals with the, the aspects of sexuality. So these men wanted to have a homosexual relationship with these individuals that, that came into the city. And, and Lot, in this amazing turn of events, in my mind that I still 
to this day, cannot fathom. I understand that he's to protect his, his guests. That's the hospitable thing to do. But he protects them by offering his two virgin daughters up to all these men in the city. It, it baffles my mind. And yet he decides, I'm going to try and protect those who really need no protection. And I was reading through the passage, and, and what was interesting is they, they got so mad, they pushed Lot against and said, you, you foreigner Lot, we are going to do what's the same to you and worse. So they're threatening you know, rape against Lot or maybe even to kill him. And they get to the point where the men, these angels, reach out, they pull Lot in, they strike the other men with blindness, and they say, you need to get you and your family, anybody else, out. Lot's lost the moral high ground at this point because his family's not even going to listen to him. He's, he's brought his family to the point of worldliness, to being around this, to being present, to being comfortable with the sin and the sexuality that is pervasive in their culture. And he's lost all moral high ground when it comes to, to trying to convince his family to, to leave. We'll talk more about that tonight. But uh, he, they look, Lot and some of his family flee. We know that that happens. And the city of Sodom is, is destroyed, the city of Gomorrah, and the city of the plains, not just one or two cities. Now I ask you, when, when God destroys the plains of the city, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the sin? Okay. It's, yeah, maybe. Okay. It's, it's very interesting. I, critics are going to argue that it's not homosexuality. They're going to say that's, that's not the sin. And here's why. When they look at it, they're going to say, they're going to say it's a lack of social justice. It was a lack of hospitality. They should have invited these people in and been kind and respectful. They should not have tried to rape them. They should have been, been gracious to them. The reason they do is they quote Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. That's scripture. That's, that's why, according to Ezekiel... Sodom is destroyed. But wait, what do we always jump to? It's the sin of homosexuality. That's why they were destroyed. And so critics are looking and saying, wait, you just have an agenda against homosexuality. So you've made this city because that was the sin that they were struggling with. You, you're just going to say that. Now, let's take a step back here. Because whenever critics are, are critical, you need, to look at, you need to look at the entire context. When we, when we look at those cities, what are some observations we can make? First of all, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were many. But honestly, there was one for certain that was sexual in nature. Okay, it, it, it is present. Uh, if you look in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, I'll, I'll just read for you. The context that, that surrounds that verse in 49. Uh, verse 47 says, uh, Yet thou hast not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, plural, but as if it were a very little thing. Thou was corrupted more in all the ways. So they highlight that there was not just one sin. Ezekiel is highlighting that there were multiple abominations that were taking place in the city of Sodom. But what they don't bring out together is they have that verse 49 that we read, that it's social injustice and, and, and the like. But then verse 50, the following verse says, And they were haughty and committed an abomination singular before me. There is only in the moral code of God, which we'll talk about here in a moment in Leviticus. In the moral code of God, there is only one sin that is ever singled out directly as an abomination. There are multiple abominations. And, and we'll see in Leviticus 18 in a moment that there are multiple abominations of sexuality. But there is one that is singled out as an abomination. 
It is the sin of homosexuality. As, as far as that even, even concerned, um, beyond that historical literature, we can read Philo, we can read Josephus. They, they instantly, back in the day, they quoted back to saying it was the case. Even in archaeology, we see that they had a reputation. Sodom and Gomorrah had a reputation for more than social injustice. In the city of Pompeii, there's been some archaeological evidence that's been discovered. They found a sector of the city of Pompeii that was, uh, that was they consider it now the homosexual sector, uh, sector of Pompeii. In that area, they found, they found glyphs, drawings that would be about equivalent to if you went into the junior high bathroom, you know, the little drawings on the stalls that, that are there. But on the drawings, there are pictures portraying sexual, homosexual acts, and next to it, written, is Sodom and Gomorrah. So even archaeology refers back to the fact that, that the sin that this, the reputation of this area, of this city, of the plains, was that of homosexuality. In fact, Jude 7 talks about that they were practicing, Sodom, Sodom was practicing going after strange flesh. The wording that's used there in the New Testament talking about strange flesh is that is that which is against nature. The natural law, the natural aspect which we follow after, it is going against that. So critics would then argue, though, they argue that passage because right before it talks about angels. They're saying, well, in Jude 7, it's talking about having sex with angels. That's what they, that's what they were being judged for. But remember back to Genesis 19. Did the individuals, the men of the city, did they know that they were angels? They didn't. They just said, hey, bring the men of the city. They didn't say bring the angels of the city out. They understood that these were, these were men. It was, it was a homosexual activity, and, and that is what's being said. And, and we can look at it, and I, I believe it's very clear from not just the passage in, in uh, Ezekiel and, and Jude. This is what one of the sins, though there were many, Sodom was judged for the sin of homosexuality. God, God makes that clear. But he, in some minds, all that's still unclear. But God does not leave it unclear. God becomes very clear as, as the nation of Israel is chosen, as they go through bondage in Egypt, and as they're brought out and redeemed, and, and Moses is given the law of God, God gives him his, his law. He gives him his, his civic law, how they're going to function as a nation. He gives them the ceremonial law, how they, how they are going to act when they're coming to worship. But he also gives them the moral law, these, these truths that are going to transcend all of, all of the ages, things about God that are always about God and the way we are to act. And we get into Leviticus 18.22. It says this, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. In verse, chapter 20, verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. When I, when I look at these, these passages, we need to take a step back for a second. What is Leviticus all about? It's about holiness. The word holy, holiness, being holy is used 87 times in the book. It is God teaching us how to live morally, uprightly, how to live holy, and how to be holy. And even for the children of Israel. The key verse, 19 verse 2. You shall be holy because I am holy. That's quoted again in the New Testament. Peter says, you be holy because I am holy. This includes sexuality and marriage. And Jesus, or God takes multiple passages to, to take the time to be very clear with the children of Israel on proper, holy, sexual practices. And that's where you find, the, the couched in that chapter 18, uh, verse 22, you find, you find that there. God's plan for intimacy in the garden was, was one man with one woman. It wasn't, if you read through chapter 18, we're not going to spend the time to do it. Uh, it'll make you feel awkward, and you'll love me if I got into all the details. You can read through sometime, and then you'll understand why I'm saying that. Um, you can read through it. It's, it's, 
It's not with close relatives. God's plan was not with close relatives. God's plan was not sex with another man's wife. God's plan was not sex with man and an animal. God's plan was not sex two men with, with two men or with two women. That was not God's plan. God had an intended design, an intended plan for marriage and for sexuality. And when we lay it out, we look at it and say, okay, that's what God's plan. God clearly states that an individual taking part in same-sex relations are guilty of an abomination before the Lord. Remember I had mentioned that there was the idea of the abominations, plural, and then the, uh, the, the singular abomination. That, that happens here in, in Leviticus 18, where, uh, where God, God is going to look um, in the passage. He's going to say to keep the judgments and to, and to go through all these... Um, I just lost my place. Sorry there. Uh, verse 22 talks about, there it is, uh, that, that is an abomination singular. And then go down to verse 27. He says, for all these abominations have men done in the land. So he's calling all these other sexual practices of chapter 18 abominations. But he says, this one in particular, it is an abomination. In chapter 20, it highlights the fact that they are guilty. Both members of this, of this uh, perverse sexual union uh, in verse 13, are guilty, they shall be surely put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And so, so it highlights that it's there. Now, it's the individuals. They're responsible for the sexual choices they make. That includes us today. We are responsible for the sexual choices that we make. Now, critics are going to argue, well, this is unfair, because what if, and, and, and they often go to extremes, what, what if someone is forced to take place in this, this homosexual act? The, 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 the one man rapes another man. I mean, that, what I found ironic is that a, a movement that is continually saying we're about love and peace and we're not about hurt and is going to look and say, well, what if, what if this happens? So it, it happens. But remember, even with that, even with that idea, the law gives safe haven for victims of sexual abuse and assault. Deuteronomy 22 talks about the fact that if a woman was raped... She's not guilty of fornication. She's not guilty of adultery. In fact, it's the man who is to be put to death in that situation. And, and what some will say is, well, that just deals with women. Just like in Deuteronomy, or Leviticus 18 and verse 20, it's only dealing with men. So, so a lesbian relationship isn't condemned by God, just a homosexual relationship. But, but think through the process of the law here. The, the law is, is written very, very broadly, yet very specifically. So take that logic. The logic would say, well, if... If a man goes out and kills his neighbor, that man is guilty. He needs to be put to death. And it says that that's what the man would be done. If you're going to take the logic that says, well, it just says man, then the logic would say, well, I can just take a, if a lady goes out, if the, if the lady goes out and kills somebody, she's not guilty of, of murder. Because that's, that's the logic that you're playing with. No, the, the law is stating that if, that if a man or a woman kills this man, they're guilty of it. The same thing is true. If a man lies with a man, it is an abomination. If a woman lies with a woman, it is considered an abomination. And the, the same thing goes for the sexual victims. If a man was raped by another man, he's probably not going to let people know because he feels very shameful about it. But if it were to come out, he's not guilty of that. Deuteronomy 22 lays that out. That we are to be, and we ought to be as believers, we ought to be some of the champions who are saying this sexual abuse, this victimization needs to stop. And we need to be going out and telling and helping people in these areas and giving them hope when they're hurting. That's our responsibility as believers. He goes on, he takes it further. Now, this, this is where I got super convicted. And I was going through, I'm like, Pastor, this is, this is, I'm, I'm more convicted studying about homosexuality than I am about studying about 
about fornication and, and thought life and lust. And I was like, wow, this is, God takes this, this further. He's stating that to have a similar sexual ethic as the secular, secular world around us is an abomination. If we are just to the point where we're like, well, we're okay with it. It's just, that's the way the world is. And, you know, I, it's no big deal. That's how they are. This is how we are. And, and we just have this, this laissez-faire attitude about it. Leviticus 18 says, uh, verses 26 and following, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that comes in among you. For all these are abominations uh, have the men of the land done, which were before you in this land is defiled. The land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among the, their people. Therefore, shall you keep my ordinance that you commit any of one of these abomination, uh, abominable customs, which were committed before you, and that you defile not yourself therein. I am the Lord your God. God looks and says, it's not just enough to say, hey, we don't approve of that. He looks and says, I'm holding you to a high sexual ethic. You can't be part of that. You cannot condone that. You cannot look and say, hey, it's okay. And yet, as believers, have we not got to the point? I know I have. Well, you know what? That's just the way it is. I'm okay with homosexuality as long as it's not my family. Okay, I'm, and we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with some of the comments we make. We'll talk more about it tonight. But there are individuals in our congregation who are battling with the fact that they're, they're battling with same-sex attraction. There are individuals here who are battling with the fact that some of their family members are, have come out of the closet and are gay or a lesbian. If we just sit out here and we're like, yeah, we just ought to burn them all. Seriously? That's not, that is not our response. But the Bible calls us to a very high sexual ethic. Teens, young adults, don't buy into the idea that you can just go at it however the world says and ask forgiveness later and God will love you anyway. We are called to a high sexual ethic. You be pure, you be holy, you do what is right before God. And God will bless you for it. And you will be very thankful in the years to come that you remain pure and you remain holy. Critics will even argue um, that why do, we, why do we deal with Leviticus? I mean, aren't there other practices in Leviticus you don't practice? I mean, what about wearing of mixed clothes? I mean, Leviticus forbids that. What, what about, you know, the, the, the gender garments? You, you know, it seems like you're okay with pants on women now. And some people say, well, it forbids that. What about these practices? What, what about Leviticus? And, and honestly, at times, we've been guilty as, as pastors of promoting this idea. Oh, it's Leviticus. Just skip over that and get to some other stuff you can understand later. And we, we, we diminish Leviticus, and we ought not. It is a powerful book, and it is a book that we as believers need to understand and work through. Why, why can't we just dismiss it? Let me give you a couple things. We cannot start with the presupposition that the law is just largely irrelevant. Oh, it's the law. We live under grace. Dismiss the law. Just live under grace. The law is given to us. It is our schoolmaster. It, it keeps us in line. It protects us. It guides us. It directs us. We can't just start and say, oh, dismiss it. And if we like it, then we'll take it. We need to look at the law and say, we need, we need to understand it. Leviticus is not treated as obscure. It's not treated as obsolete in the New Testament. It's quoted 13 different times. You may say, well, that doesn't seem like a lot, but that's the fifth most quoted book in the New Testament out of the Old Testament. It's quoted multiple times by Paul and by Peter. They, they, quote, they quote from the book 
saying it's important for us to understand. Paul used the terms found in these verses to deal directly with homosexuality. In fact, if you go over to 1 Corinthians 9, I actually have it on the, the screen for you there, or you can go over. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. There's, there's a unique thing that happens here. Paul is going to use the, the terms found in Leviticus to, to create a new word. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not perceive neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. In 1 Timothy 1.10, he says, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Catch that. We'll talk about that in a second. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, which highlights that homosexuality is contrary to sound biblical teaching. That's the word of God stated there. But the, the words that are used here, the word effeminate has the idea of somebody who is passive in the activity of homosexuality. And then the, the word homosexual has somebody who is active in nature. Sometimes in some translations, it's, it's translated the sodomite uh, that is there. But here's what Paul does. I thought it was very interesting. Lending credibility to the fact that Leviticus is spot on dealing with this, this topic. He says, you shall not lie with a male. The Hebrew that's used there is the word shakab and zakar. Uh, the word shakab for lie, the word zakar for male. Now, most of, in, in the, Paul's day, they would have used what is called a Septuagint or the LXX. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. So many of the people, the common Bible of Jesus and, and of that day would have been the, the Septuagint. The words that are used in these verses are koite and arson. Arson means male, koite means lie. So Paul is going to take those two words from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, words that he was common with from, understood from that passage, and he's going to smash them together. We do that all the time in our language. We take two words and we, we smash them together. He does that. He took, takes the two words and he literally puts the idea of arson coite or betters of men, those who sleep or have sexual relationships or go to bed with men. He smashes them together and uses them in this verse. So he highlights the fact that, that Leviticus is spot on when it comes to dealing with this passage, but he highlights the fact that this truth is contrary to sound teaching. The idea of homosexuality, of effeminate aspects, it is contrary to sound teaching. Which, to me, if something is contrary to sound teaching, then it is it's sin. It is wrong. It is not to be partaken of by Christians, by others. So we have to understand that, that Paul, Paul highlights that. He also says you, the idea, I don't believe we can just take something that God calls an abomination and just re, re, you know, put it down to, ah, it's just a social taboo, it's just ritual uncleanness, just leave it. No, it's an abomination before the Lord. That's, that's weighty. And most of these sins that are found in Leviticus 18 and 20 are reaffirmed in the New Testament. So as we go to the New Testament, we see that, that these topics... These topics are, whether it's, whether it's adultery, whether it's uh, uh, sleeping with your neighbor's wife, whether it's uh, the, the idea of homosexuality, of incest in 1 Corinthians 5, now all of that, all of that is reaffirmed back in the New Testament. And, and as God goes through, he, he brings us to the point, as you go through the scriptures, though there are only six passages in the Bible that deal directly with homosexuality, he brings us to the point where he's becoming more and more clear on this topic so that we understand it. And we get to Romans 1, the great exchange. And, and in Romans chapter 1, Paul says to them, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God 
unto salvation. And he looks, and, and look, look how he, he's going to lay this out here. As he, as he goes through the passage, there's going, to be, there's going to be some words that become very, very common and popular here. But give you a little background here, what, what it's saying. Paul says, verse 17, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, the just shall live by faith. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because he understood it's the power of God unto salvation. That sinners need this. That we need to be sharing it. He says, this is what we need to be doing. He's like, I'm just compelled to share it. In verse 17, he says, because it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God is revealed. That as we see our sin laid before us, that we need Jesus Christ and we need his righteousness. Verse 17, he says, why do I need to share the gospel? Because if I believe that the wrath of God is real and it is going to be revealed upon those who have a broken relationship with God, then I have a responsibility to be sharing that. And that includes those, and we'll talk more tonight again, that includes those in the LGBT community. We have a responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to just step back and say, oh, it's gross to me. I I can't do that. You know, to look and say, well, I hate those people. That is just, that is not biblically correct. We have a responsibility to be hope in a light and light in a dark place, to be gracious, to be kind, to be loving, to do that because we understand the wrath of God is going to be poured out. If we are going to be so dogmatic and I believe we should be, that homosexuality is sin, then we must understand that that means that those individuals who are practicing it, 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us of it, are on a destiny headed toward the pit of hell. And that ought to break our hearts and that ought to concern us, not just gross us out. And yet we look and we say, I don't want to talk about it. It's out of sight, out of mind. Paul says, I am constrained by the gospel of Christ. And he, he goes into the passage and he's going to highlight two key words. He's going to talk about change and he's going to talk about giving. And he's going to talk about literally what we as humans have changed or exchanged and what God gives humanity because of that. Look what he does. Verse 21, 23. He highlights, he says that we have, we have changed the invisible for the visible. We, we've put away because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was doctrine or darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became foolish and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. We replace the creator with the creature. We've, we've taken idols and we've put it in his place. And it says that God gives them over to their uncleanness. When we begin to dismiss the authority of the word of God, we dismiss the sovereignty of our God. We dismiss the fact that he is in uh, above all and that he is personally involved in our life. When we begin to dismiss that and live the life we want to live, God begins to give us over to our uncleanness. Verse 24, wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who, now verse 25, who changed, there it is again, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. So now we've taken all the truths, we've taken who God is, we've replaced it with who we think we want God to be, ourselves. 
We've taken what God teaches, his truth, and we've changed it into lies. We've changed it into things that are contrary to sound teaching. And we live by that. And God gives us up to vile affections, to, to those things that are uh, degrading passions, the, the debaseness of our heart of humanity. Verse 26, it goes on then, for this cause he gave them to vile affections. Now for even m- women did change the natural law uh, which, um, sorry, I just lost my place there. Uh, women which change the natural law of the use of women, burning their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and received. Uh, sorry, verse 26. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. They've changed God's design for marriage and sex for their own self-passions. Are we living in that? We are, we are dead smack in the middle of that. And God gives them, the next thing that God gives over is to a reprobate mind, a completely secular mindset, one that is totally devoid of God. And we look at our country and we say, we got to change the laws. We got to change the laws. We got to change the laws. No, we got to change the hearts. And that's what Paul starts with. He says it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not about changing law. It is about changing our culture. And the only way for us to change the culture is to be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be willing to stand up and say something is sin. And right in the the middle of this whole exchange, he highlights the idea of homosexuality is a sin. And it is is depraved. And it is wrong. And and for those who would argue that lesbianism isn't condemned in the Bible, it says it right there. Because that's, that's what some of the critics will argue. It just deals with homosexuality. Verse 27 says, the women also were involved in this. So, so where does this leave us? I think very clearly we can say this. God establishes marriage and sex for a man and a woman. That is biblical. The Bible very clearly condemns homosexuality as sin. God calls us as believers, to a higher sexual ethic than this world. We cannot just simply, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. We must be light. We must show people. We want to be love. Love is, love is not simply not saying anything. Oh, it's awkward. I don't, want to, I don't want to tell my coworkers that this is wrong. That's not love. If you truly understand what the outworking is for that individual that they are bound and destined for hell because of their sin, how is it love to keep our mouths shut? It's not. We must talk about this. We must be comfortable with it enough that we can be able to walk our way through Scripture, say this is what the Bible says, but God moves it to the fact of this. There is hope for any and all who have been involved in sin, including sexual sin. You might, you might be here today and you're saying, you know what, Pastor, I don't know you. I didn't even know what you were going to speak on, but I'm smack dab in the middle of homosexuality and I'm struggling with it. There is hope for you. The Bible clearly lays that out. And I want you to know that you do not have to be ashamed. You can come and talk to myself. You can talk to any other staff member. We would love to be able to help you with that. To be able to help you see what God says and the hope that he offers to us. There is hope for anybody. You're you're here today and you're saying, I'm not involved in, in, in homosexuality, but I'm struggling with sexual sin. There's hope for you. The Bible says very clearly in both of those passages, Romans 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for our sins. No, it doesn't say only for certain sins. He came to die for our sins. He came to die for your sins. So that you did not have to face the wrath of God, that you can be spared, that you can experience the ultimate great exchange. You see, we exchange 
our truths or our lives for God's truth. But the ultimate exchange that occurs is when God takes our sinfulness and he places his robes of righteousness around us and says, I will take your sin upon my shoulders, that I will forgive you of your sins through salvation, through your faith and your trust in me. And he offers that hope through us. Even in verse chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says, the, eff- the effeminate, the homosexuals, the, those who were there, all of those individuals who went through all the sins, he says, such were some of you. It highlights salvation is possible for any and all. And this radical change that you can be sanctified, that you can be right with God, you can be justified, you can be washed of your sins, knowing that the Bible offers hope for all of our sins.